0: Hi, and welcome to Third Waves. Third is a platform that amplifies underrepresented voices through print, events, and on the airwaves. We interrogate the intersections of culture and activism, bringing you interviews and discussion with guests who have knowledge and lived experience on the topic at hand. I'm Rona, Editor-in-Chief and founder of Third.
1: I'm Tribe. I'm the music editor at Third and co-host
2: I'm Daniela, producer of this show. Happy New Year and thank you for returning to our show. Before we get into it, we wanted to ask something of you. A lot of podcasts will ask you to like, follow and review their episodes.
0: And though we'd love you to do all those things, we have another request to ask of you.
2: Yes, another request.
0: Our humble wish is that you share this episode with someone who needs to listen, be it a friend, colleague your grandma whoever share the love by sharing this or any of our other episodes put a link in your whatsapp group tweet your favorite quote or gram with hashtag Third waves
2: oh yeah and like follow and review us too please On this episode, we're going to stay with that feeling of dissonance when you're offered a job by a questionable company or asked to work on a project associated with unethical practices. We all have bills to pay, but are there opportunities to meaningfully exercise our voice and power, to forge some change in the workplace, and what's the best way to make this impactful? It feels particularly relevant to put this episode out now, you know, at the beginning of the year. For me, it's definitely a time where I think quite intentionally about my work and career. For the meaty discussion you're about to hear, we've teamed up with the Leftist Utopian Comedy Podcast, one of my favourite podcasts, Seriously Wrong. That's seriously spelt without any vowels, except if you think Y is a vowel, of course. Anyway, I'll just let the guys introduce themselves and get right into it. Sean and Aaron, it's so exciting to have you guys on doing this collab. For our listeners, please, can you just tell us who you are, what you do, and what Seriously Wrong is all about?
3: Yeah. Sean can tell you those wonderful things. My name's Aaron. I'm just getting my voice in there so people can tell the difference.
4: I'm Sean. Seriously Wrong, it's a, we do a podcast, Utopian Comedy Podcast. And what we're hoping to do is sort of outline different ways that society could be in a way that is funny and interesting. And that's, that's what we like to do utopia in the positive sense, you know, like a perfect society, like I think we should just sort of try to go for it. Um, Often people can be kind of cynical and be like, oh, utopia, it means that it's impossible. But like the impossibility of good things is part of the thrill of chasing them. Yeah. And
3: I mean, a lot of things that have seemed impossible in the past actually end up happening. And even if the specifics don't end up exactly coming to pass, imagining what a better world can look like can help us take steps in that direction.
2: I love it. Can't wait to get into conversation.
4: This
3: crossover
4: episode of Seriously Wrong and Third Waves is brought to you by the undemocratic growth of corporate media monopolies.
3: Are you tired of diversity and difference in the media sphere? Uh, yes, I think so. Do you wish that you and your wealthy friends could control a larger stake in the public imagination? Well, now you've got my attention. Well, then have we got the solution for you. Corporate media conglomeration through constant acquisition. Wow! Here's how we do it. Larger media corporations buy shares in smaller corporations until they have a controlling stake, giving them the ability to influence and direct the media being made under their broad umbrella. What this looks like in practice is a diverse media space being acquired, monopolized, and eaten up by bigger corporations in an extending web of ideological monopoly, controlling more and more of the intellectual space in our society. But how do we counter the allegation that it's bad for corporations to have so much power? People need to remember that having too many perspectives out there in the world can just be confusing. We want to give the impression of representing a wide range of perspectives ourselves within bounds that we control, collapsing it all into a homogenous flat art corporate Memphis style. By limiting the common sense of what is possible, we can keep those who are currently privileged and rich in their positions of unjust power. I'm sorry, I mean just power, That was just, I misspoke. Just power. Well, this is just wonderful. What, what, what do I have to do? Here's the beautiful part. You don't have to do anything. It's already happening. According to journalist Ben Bagdikian, the amount of corporations controlling the vast majority of media organizations in the U.S. in 1981 was 46, but by 1983 had reduced to 27. 21 years later, in 2004, it was down to just five. Hooray! Well, that's very few media corporations. And while things may have shifted around a little bit with the new media space online, rest assured that a few big players players like Amazon, Google, and Facebook are still gobbling up the competition and centralizing power as we speak.
4: What about the artists? Won't they make mind-bending art that causes the sleeping masses to wake up?
3: Well, we can just pay some of them to make their art to defend the system and blackball impoverish those who challenge the hegemony. So we give the artists the choice of either working for us or starving. You got it. But surely we can still take advantage of their critical
4: anti-capitalist output after they
3: die though, right? That's right. Artists should never be appreciated during their own time. There's plenty of time to sell their ideas with little tweaks in the long corporatist present after they're gone. And we can make the masses fight about remakes of movies and reboots instead of fighting for, you know, pre-making society. Want to keep that the same. I love you, corporate ad man. You make a lot of sense. Oh, uh, don't love me. I'm just doing my job. I actually disagree philosophically with all of this, but if I don't read the copy, you know, I fear for my family. It's how I make a living. So the corporate domination of media necessarily makes corporate perspectives dominant, pushes my perspective out and makes me complicit through implicit threats to my well-being and those I care about.
4: Today's episode brought to you by corporate acquisition, media monopoly, and the quiet ideological conformity of business self-interest. Proud unconscious shaper of this episode of Seriously Wrong, and in fact, all ideas in our profoundly stratified society. And now back to our show.
2: So on this episode, I kind of envisioned it to be like a practical guide to boycotting monopolies from within the creative industry. That's where I work, that's where, you know, Rona and Tribe work. Also I mean, we also work in other spheres, but, you know, I'm speaking from those places and it was very much inspired by a recent experience where we were pitching on a recruitment advert for the US Army and I found myself for the first time really contending with like you know, is this a job that I actually want to take on and how do I reject it if I felt like I didn't want to? So that's kind of where this all came through. And I almost just want to start by defining what a monopoly is.
4: Monopoly would be a non-competitive space in like a market environment where you have something that's like too big to fail or you have the control of an entire industry by yourself. They're more able to consolidate power and exert their will on the entire industry or their will on the populace and so on without having people have ability to participate. I mean, I would sort of quibble and say it's not just about competition in the sense of the marketplace. It's also about democratic engagement, people's participation in systems more broadly.
3: Concentration of power into fewer and fewer hands, I think, is another way to think about it.
2: I actually didn't think about the non-competitive aspect, which obviously is so key, but more as a mechanism of suppressing multiple ideas or multiple ways of doing things. And for me, I feel like the unethical practice part of it is really key as well. The fact that when things become so big, they start absorbing everything and start being unable to see the damage is causing on smaller individual but human levels. But just as a counterpoint to that... Um, Tribe, I think the last time we spoke about this, you brought up that when we talk about boycotting companies or working with people, it's not only monopolies that have unethical practices.
1: Yeah, I think it's quite easy to target the monopolies or the transnational corporations because they're so big. But bad practice isn't limited to just monopolies. Although there are loads wrong with monopolies, it can just be a corporate culture or company culture that could be unethical.
3: Yeah, even like small businesses can behave unethically. And in terms of like the media and publishing industries, like a lot of the times it's not just one company, but there's a sort of shared perspective or shared patterns of what gets made, which voices get time, platforms, money behind them. There can be this sort of like cultural space where certain ideas and people's perspectives are systematically repressed because the function of the market and the system and the incentives involved in the people who have the power and their biases result in these types of restrictions and roadblocks, regardless of whether it's like a functional like market monopoly. It's like a, an ideological monopoly. And in terms of like, when are you selling out or when is it bad to work somewhere, it doesn't really matter if the unethical practices are directly related to a monopoly or not. I also think of the grocery store test, which
4: is like, does the person at the front counter of the grocery store carry responsibility for everything their bosses do, everything that's in the supply chain and stuff? Like, You could argue that maybe there's some culpability and stuff, but it's a really complex question because it's so diffuse.
3: I think one of the reasons that this conversation comes up in creative fields a lot more than say the ground level workers at gas stations or whatever, like we don't think about those types of participation in these negative systems in the same way as creative ones. And I think it's because creative stuff is more outwardly facing.
0: When you're part of the creative process, there is this idea that you just have more participation in how a brand is representing itself. Not to say that I think creatives can sit down just Bezos and say like, you know, don't start selling your products like this. Yeah, I think storytelling is so important to a lot of these monopolies, right? A lot of the storytelling on a corporation level is also about getting people to buy into a certain aspect of the company and not think about another aspect. And actually, sometimes the conundrum you have as a creative is, do I want to partake in this particular kind of storytelling, which is maybe covering up for actions or even business allegiances underneath this company.
4: We now go to a group of friends getting drinks at the bar for the first time in a few weeks.
2: Oh my gosh, so how's everyone been? Good. good, I mean, two weeks is too long.
4: Yeah, I've just been tired. If we all pitched in for a pitcher, it would only be like eight bucks each. Uh, um, um, I mean,
3: I mean a, Or we could share some kind of appetizer later, whatever you yeah. like Ice water and a thing of fries.
0: I'm really just trying to get my water and take up.
2: Good idea, I heard water is so good for you. Tap water
1: with ice and lemon? Is lemon free? Babes, lemon and ice is not free. Oh, man. Hard times. But I've got some good news. Things are looking up for me. Oh, yeah? I've just landed my dream job. I mean, <gasps> when I say dream job, I just mean a well-paid <laughs> position that would help me get by. Do you know Omnicorp?
2: Uh, who doesn't know Omnicorp?
4: Yeah, one of the richest guys in the world owns that.
1: Yeah. Well, um... I am going to be soon writing for them. News Corp Daily, I can't believe it! Yeah, I'm going to be writing for News Corp Daily, I know! No more dead-end, like, writing for blogs about things I've never seen or done, but just drawing information online. Uh, like I feel like, finally, my writing will be seen by loads of people. Everyone reads News Court Daily.
0: You know, it's such a laugh. You're going to have an amazing time. <laughs>
3: well, I mean, they do they do print some pretty silly stuff there.
1: Maybe I will start off by writing some of those ridiculous stories. You know, we've all seen those ones about, I don't know, Meghan mm. Markle and, and Prince Harry or what certain countries are doing that obviously clearly have business ties with uh, the owner of the newspaper. Maybe I start off like that and then I can do breaking news, you know, really expose things.
2: Did someone mention Prince Harry? Oh my God, he is so fit. Totally. I guess that's still like political,
1: isn't it? I mean like royal political. I mean, most importantly, it's well paid, so drinks will be on me, and starters will be on me. You guys will have to sort out the main.
4: <laughs> uh, um, Corp, that was the multinational corporation that, that did that chemical spill, right? Like a couple months ago.
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I I did hear about that. I know it's something that I hope they fixed. You know, uh, maybe they.
4: Yeah, from I think it's or... in court. Huh? I think it's in court. to, oh. to not they they want to not pay. Oh, okay. So. We'll see.
2: Oh, wait, babes. Last time we met up, you were telling us about this dissertation or something that you were writing for masters, some kind of Zizek critique of Shakespeare. I don't know. There were loads of long words in that. Are you going to have time for that still?
1: If I go down this path, uh, my research piece will be on the hold. Uh, but it doesn't mean that I, I'm closing it down forever. It just means it's on pause, I guess.
2: I mean, it sounded a bit dense and boring anyway,
1: so who cares? Joking! Ah, say how you really feel.
3: <laughs> I mean, I thought your dissertation sounded interesting, but, you know, at, at a certain point, we got to grow up, we got to get real jobs, and we got to have a life, pay for things. I say... Go for it.
1: Oh, cheers, cheers. I was starting to doubt my life there. It's been so long being broke, like,
3: gee. Do you think there's any chance that the
4: out-of-touch media mogul that runs Omnicorp and NewsCorp Corp Daily might make you not report the truth when it comes to, like, chemical spills and labor violations? And, like, I don't have the list in front of me, but I think I remember something about child soldiers. I have to look it up.
1: Yes, yeah, I guess it's not ideal. Maybe I'm going to have to for a little while kind of keep them when it comes to stuff that my own company is doing, especially with all the information, all the news coverage that's coming out right now on Omnicorp. It doesn't feel exactly perfect to be working for the man, I guess. I, I kind of envisioned maybe at first not really mentioning anything and maybe getting to a point where they have taken to me and then rock the boat you know be a ninja from the inside but i can imagine maybe
4: i I won't get that chance and i'm not go for it i'm not actually i don't mean i feel like i'm showing up i'm moralizing it's supposed to be a happy i'm not trying to moralize i'm not like like from your perspective like you didn't you didn't do a chemical spill
1: i mean i don't even work there yet right
3: exactly That's before your time. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, and it's not like you'll have to lie, right? Like you'll probably just have to skirt around things that are true, framing things in a particular way.
0: It's just, you know, editorial voice publication goes for. It's not your fault if they just decide to not include some integral facts to a story or something like that. Do you know what I mean? Like, your writing goes through a whole editorial process. Like, what are you supposed to do? You can't be blamed,
4: babes.
1: Yeah, I mean, I hope there are journalists out there
0: who are able to spill the tea. Oh my gosh, I heard that members of Omnicorp get membership at the ballroom. Hey. Will you get me
1: in? Yeah, I guess every opportunity, I'm, I'm spreading it round. I'm your plus one. Lifting you all up.
2: Anyway, guys, I brought you some crisps. I'm really sorry, I could only afford one packet, but we can each have at least two crisps each, and that's basically like dinner, right? Aren't you guys on a diet? Yeah,
1: thank I don't you. Don't if, I'll,
4: I'll have a crisp. <laughs> Me Absolutely. too.
2: Mm, that's a good crisp. It's been a
1: while. I'm gonna remember this when I first get
2: paid. These
4: crisps are actually made by Omnicorp, so I guess we're all complicit in this, Bill. <laughs> <laughs>
3: oh yeah, I forgot that company was owned by them as well. Yeah. Uh, wait. Isn't this chain of bars also owned by Omnicorp? Oh, yeah, of
2: course. Yeah. Wow. That's why I picked
1: it. Omnicorp is so omnipresent. I mean, hopefully I'll get discounts of all of this. Discount would be so good.
3: Part of what's hard about this is that these companies or these institutions are collective efforts of so many people. And if you work at an ad agency that the U.S. military hires, to what extent does your participation in that make you culpable for the sort of colonial world policing, making the world safe for business interests, stuff that the military partakes in?
4: I think that is really one of the most compelling questions here. Is when you're participating in these systems and like, I think the US military is a pretty extreme example within this sphere of like, you can just see how that could really negatively contribute to like these systemic forces. It's an interesting question around sort of ideological monopoly versus like the sort of market monopoly in that like, this is an institution that has a lot of like narrative power in the world of what sort of hegemony is and what people perceive as reality is partially dictated by the foreign policy press releases that are associated with the army infrastructure. Participations in these ideological monopolies seem to be a place that have particular like relevance for creatives in terms of like how you're helping these enormous corporations push everyone else out or limit the frontiers of people's imaginations.
2: Yeah, I think it's really interesting to hear about this kind of extrapolation of what it means to work in the creative industry and what powers you have and how those jobs are different from certain other jobs. And And I agree with you, Aaron, that I think there is an element of the transmuting of ideas which gives it a different aspect and how people might expect people working in those industries to have more responsibility to engage critically with what it is they are communicating. Because, yeah, I mean, especially in advertising and certainly in movies, you're very easily part of a propaganda machine. I just definitely feel like it can also be a misconception that people in those roles are not also tiny cogs in a machine. Like It's actually, in many instances, a very unglamorous job and with very low salaries, especially with the internship phenomenon where people are like, oh, this is going to be great for your portfolio or whatever, all this kind of stuff. And you get seduced, especially, you know, young graduates, very talented young makers get seduced into working for a really big brand because that would make their name. And and for those, you know, first portfolio pieces, you don't necessarily have that luxury to, in in some sense, is ethical. And, and I mean, it would just be unheard of to boycott a Nike commission, for example, in Advertising, you know, because they are pay really well. And yeah, often the creative is amazing.
1: Yeah. I was thinking something similar about a level of privilege sometimes that people can have to not take those opportunities. Some people can afford to skip opportunities, while some people simply can't afford to do such a thing.
4: I'm hesitant to criticize people based on the jobs that they have, if they're like putting food on the table for their family and stuff. I also think there are are jobs that people probably shouldn't take, but like ultimately they have to be the sort of arbiter of that in their community and, you know, follow their ethical heart and follow their own sense of it and do what they think is right. Something you brought up has an interesting aspect to it, which is like if the firm you're working for is hired by the military... Then I think almost everyone would say, like, if you're an employee and your boss tells you, you have to make this ad and you're part of an ad agency that there's some like moral culpability removed from you because it's part of this work environment whereby like rejecting it, you might be rejecting your workplace. You might be out of work and stuff. But if you're an independent contractor, I feel like our moral sense is more like you can't individually take those contracts. But if it's through this like layer of someone else making you do it then it becomes more okay and that doesn't really seem like morally consistent to me but it's just where my intuition's pulled me
2: very interesting that you talk about the difference between a full-time employee versus someone who's self-employed that independence in being able to choose your gig certainly is one of the perks of being self-employed if you have that luxury of being able to choose because lots of clients are coming to you but actually the other part of that is like, as we move towards more of a gig economy, the people who work as self employed shoulder a lot of risks. In sort of the older model, the companies would be thinking, okay, this is your health insurance or benefits, these kind of things. And as we go towards that gig economy, that all falls into the individual. And here we are talking in the context of boycotting unethical practices or companies, let's say, that burden, once again, falls onto those who are shouldering this kind of evolution of the market, like of the workforce towards the gig economy, which actually makes it even more burdensome or even more dangerous in some senses, because we're talking about someone who's self-employed and works in advertising that's very different from somebody who's working a zero-hours contract, which can also be considered in the similar vein of like how they have that quote-unquote independence.
4: So yeah, that move towards contractors effectively means like a decentralization and individualization of the ethics of the marketplace, which used to be taken on by the firm, where it used to be that an employee could at least say they were just taking orders. But like (laughs) now they don't even get that because they're like so fighting for scraps of work that it's like, yeah, I have to really make this individual ethical decision to like sell out or whatever here. Yeah, it's, it's interesting to think of firms trading off a moral responsibility onto their contractors
2: and i think if you look at the roles that people can have and how they can act according to their ethics it's like there's like proximities to where the decision is made so like if you are actually an officer within the military or let's say you're like an executive producer at disney that might be different from like someone who's further down the chain or someone working in like like you say graphic design or someone who then is working in catering
4: all that makes me think about like, it's really not the graphic designers in the military who do anything wrong. I mean, it's helping to sell what the military is doing, but like the real places where decisions are being made in these organizations are not in the places where one might be pointing their fingers at sort of frontline workers for their complicity in these systems. So it seems pertinent to me that we try to have a power analysis that looks at where the decisions are being made. We now go to the out-of-touch bosses of Media Monopolies complaining about the workers demanding paltry rights over a luxurious dinner.
3: Oh, that looks amazing. Could you pass the wine? No, no, not you, I meant the servant.
0: Where the caviar canapés at?
3: Oh, they're late again.
4: You can't get good help these days. Hey! You guys suck.
3: <laughs> just kidding.
4: Between us, just kidding.
3: Uh, speaking of not getting good help, do you all have any complaints about your employees? Oh,
2: yes. Yeah, so the people at work. I mean.
3: Yeah, I think a better question would be if I have
4: anything positive to say about them. Mm. Because then I could just simply say no. Exactly. And yeah. move on with dinner after that.
2: One of the artists that I work with, he came in and had the guts to ask for a more comfortable chair.
4: <laughs> what do you th- Does he think chairs grow on trees? Does he want
3: to sleep at work? Uh, yeah, not on my watch. (laughs)
2: They should be happy doing it, even just on the floor.
3: Do y'all remember that big money military contract I got recently? Some of the graphic designers, they tried to pull me aside and say they weren't comfortable with the direction of the company.
0: Imagine the audacity of anyone who thinks they know better than we do.
3: I'm a bit
2: confused about how this conversation came about. Do you pay your employees to think and ask you questions?
3: You know, we obviously all enjoy mocking and belittling our employees. We're kind of evil villain type bosses. But even if we weren't, even if there were better people in these roles, do you think our investors are going to keep giving money to us if we don't do what they want? The investors
4: demand a rapacious gathering of profit, yeah.
2: One of the artists I was working with came to me with this preposterous idea that they weren't able to bring through their authenticity in their work. I mean, what <laughs> is that? Authenticity.
3: authenticity. What, is, what is that? I, what does that even mean? Uh, what about the authenticity of the desires of our investors? That's <laughs>
2: nothing more authentic than that.
3: In our creative writing department, we
4: have a little slogan above the door. It says, if you want to write poetry, if you want to write something beautiful, something meaningful, buy a diary. That's our motto. Whatever moment of the day you're spending on this authenticity, foolishness, or having independent thoughts, coming to my office and saying, oh, I had an idea about my work conditions. Frankly, you should be clocking out for those minutes. You're committing time clock theft.
2: Great. I mean, listen to this beautiful piano music. This guy who's been playing there for, what, we've been here six hours since brunch? He hasn't complained about his authenticity and i love it like that the music is great
4: if he was talking to his bosses about the work conditions here the music would have to stop necessarily you know i had this team of graphic designers they were asking to shorten their work week
0: so selfish ridiculous
4: i was like um you already draw for a living (laughs) every day is a day off and
0: what do these people expect i mean we do live in the capitalist world right some people have to Give a little bit more so other people can enjoy a little bit more.
4: And of course, it's us giving a little bit more.
2: I mean, if I was doing something that I would loved doing since I was three years old, which is what I hear from them all the time, I'd want the week to be endless. I'd want to be drawing constantly.
3: Sick, seven days, lower my wage.
2: Eight days, if possible.
3: I'm constantly working all the time, telling people what to do, being a boss. We are the vision of what is
0: to come. We inspire them. And that's hard work. Exhausting.
3: Not to mention the
4: dinners with dignitaries, the midday checkups, checking email.
2: Dinner with you guys. I'm joking, I actually enjoy this part.
4: For sure, but it is billable hours.
2: Of course. We're talking about work right now.
0: The other day I was talking to the man, Jeff himself, and I mentioned to him, Jeff, what are you going to be doing when you you get to space and you have all that time? And he said, you know what? I'm still going to be thinking of the runnings of Amazon. Imagine. The poor guy's in space. Still thinking about the people down there.
3: Oh yeah,
4: that's so true. And the people in the warehouses are just listening to music, just having a great time.
0: Mindlessly enjoying their lives, not thinking about the pressure other people have. Even right now in this bar with my wine, I'm still thinking about the FTSE 100. If my stocks fall, Jesus Christ.
3: If your stocks fall just a few points, you could lose hundreds of millions of dollars. These people down there working for 50K a year or whatever, they can't lose hundreds of millions of dollars. They're in such a safer position than we are. There's no risk there.
2: 50? Man, listen, I feel like you are listening to your employees' complaints, giving them a very generous wage. You are going to put us all in a bad light. gonna spoil them. You're spoiling them.
0: Yeah, we do need to stick together, you know. Mm -hmm.
4: Mm -hmm. No, I can't compete with those wages. Or sorry, I should say I may not compete with
3: those wages according to my investors far it for me to be selfish in this i'm gonna take this seriously this advice from my colleagues we'll sit down we'll talk about it and maybe i can find ways to reduce the wages that i'm paying to help make it more competitive for all of you as well thank you i was thinking you know 50 that that better include benefits
4: that better be someone who's been working there for decades
2: yeah i nearly choked on my caviar when i heard that
4: so, um how is everyone feeling about ordering another round of that swordfish meatloaf? It's endangered but so good. Mm. Mm.
2: I was kind of fancying the baby turtles, actually. But the swordfish was fantastic. I had it yesterday. Oh,
4: well, if they still have baby turtles back there, I think we should get them to crack those shells right away and get going. I have a devilish idea.
2: Oh, stop. Maybe
4: we could do both. We could do both. You dirty dog. When you said that you had a devilish idea, I thought you were going to say that we should cannibalize one of our employees. (laughs) Or
3: is, is that too bad?
2: Not on a weekday.
3: I mean, I like to figuratively cannibalize my employees by working them to the bone, but... A literal cannibalization? I don't think any of mine would taste very good.
2: Hmm. Yeah, we'd have to do a lineup. It would probably take too long. I'm up for it, though. If you guys, yeah.
4: Joking, not joking, kind of, you know, mm, mm, I don't know. You know what? Let's just do the baby turtles and swordfish meat look. Yeah. Let's start there. In
2: the meantime, yeah. Think about it.
4: This episode is proudly brought to you by being a good little cog in the machine.
3: Imagine, if you will, a cog, a perfectly round toothed wheel just spinning away inside the machine, playing a small part in a larger hole. How does such a wondrous thing exist? What are the characteristics of a good cog? And how can you avoid being a bad one? first thing to remember is that a good cog is
4: unaware of, and perhaps even more importantly, uninterested in being aware of the greater structures it serves. You could argue that part of what that little cog is rewarded for is to pretend that they aren't aware of things which go against the machine, even when they actually are.
3: That's right. A cog just needs to focus on turning, turning and turning, and of course, meshing well with the other cogs that surround it. Keep those ideas to yourself, little cog. Exactly, and it's important to note that a cog, even if it
4: initially has some little rough edges that don't quite mesh into the machine, it will eventually become more and more sanded off
3: until it fits perfectly within the already existing machine. Just like a hand fitting perfectly into a glove, even if it means chopping off a few fingers. The parts of the cog that don't fit are the problem, not the shape of the machine. Sometimes when uppity little cog will get a big mouth and start trying to convince the whole machine to change from the inside but they get sanded down as well, as long as the machine keeps turning.
4: Or they get replaced, if there's actually a chance they're gonna stop the machine at all.
3: And of course, at the end of its life cycle, a used up, broken cog is discarded, having been worn down too much by the machine to be of much worth any longer. Goodbye, little cog. We salute you in your service to the machine, but
4: you are useless to us now, so we're throwing you in the trash forever. Goodbye.
3: What a good little cog that was.
4: Use, 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 and throw away. Always
3: treat your cogs that way. That's a poetry. Cog-related poetry. And that was being a good little cog in the machine. Proud sponsor of today's episode of Seriously Wrong.
2: I think what's very interesting is that if you look at where the decision is made, it's like, do you threaten your own income and livelihood to make those points? Or do you put your energy elsewhere? And it's that concept of like, do you do more good from within? Or can you do more good from outside of it?
3: When I was thinking about trying to change something from the inside or whatever, like that idea of like, participating in an institution that you don't necessarily agree with, but like, what can you do? while you're in there to trying to plant seeds around and sort of nudge things in certain directions it's going to depend on what your actual role is but even just like offering suggestions that might not be offered if you weren't there can be something that maybe doesn't have a big effect but might have some effect like talking to the other employees about more moral ways to approach certain things there's a whole spectrum of that too because you could also go in there with a mission to try and like make waves as much as you possibly can. Also just the idea of like storing up some of this goodwill or like you're like a sleeper agent. You go in there, you do everything that they want you to do for the longest time, move your way up the organization, gain more power. And then eventually maybe you could spend all that goodwill in the organization to be like, no, not this particular thing. So th- These are just some of the variations I was thinking of, of like doing what you feel is right within a morally vague situation. But then if you think like that all the time, you run the risk of just going along with all sorts of things and, and Playing these little tiny participatory roles in all kinds of potentially bad things because, well, someone else would do it anyway. And it's this kind of momentum that keeps things going. But, like, on an individual level, it's so understandable.
1: That reminds me of so one of my friends joined the police force because she really wanted to do some good and make a change from the inside and work her way up to the top you know, really change the kind of bro attitude when they're on duty and loads of things that she observed, many of the things that we're aware about. And she has found it very challenging. One, you're constantly fighting against the culture that exists. So then you're othered within the organization or within it, or you kind of become quite immune and you become used to it and gradually start to accept and normalise those things that you're hearing and seeing and the way that you're interacting with people. She gave an example of another guy who joined with the explicit aim to change the culture around being black in the police. And he was also trying to work his way up, but got to a point where he just couldn't do it no more. It kind of eroded him down and he quit. Uh, And now he's kind of moved into a position where he's going into schools and stuff like that. So it's quite hard because it's easy to just become quite complacent or, you know, having to kind of be othered just because you're making a stance at things that you're seeing and observing. Or you kind of keep quiet until you, like you said, build up that goodwill, but having kept quiet in loads of incidents where things you've seen that have not been right.
0: I think what you just said there, Tribe, really connects to this fact that for you to even take up space within an institution or in a company and want to make change, you must be able to see some form of a value in it initially. I think if you are vehemently against something, then it almost doesn't really make sense for you to be in that space. So for example, if I'm like a really, you know, political vegan, for example, I'm not going to take up a job at McDonald's with the hope of trying to change it so much. Sometimes it's better to build something completely new if you really want to create change in that way. So I think, you know, there are just so many different things that we're fighting against sometimes. And, you know, Bell Hooks has this phrase of imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist, patriarchy, which she defines as like a political system. I find it quite useful, but also at the same time, really exhausting when you think about all the different like frameworks They're super interconnected and quite powerful, but you feel sometimes as someone who wants to create change in the world, you have to fight all these systems at once. How do you do that? So, yeah, I really think whether you can take up a position at a company or not really comes to whether you can see there being at least some sort of proximity between their values and what they stand for and yourself, because otherwise I just don't see it working.
4: Yeah, I think it can be really painful to sort of like be between a rock and a hard place at work. The thought of being a sleeper for a prolonged period of time and like that's gonna be that's really bad on the soul to like have such a dissonance between what you feel and what you think. Because we we're all faced with these like tensions in our lives where we take jobs that we don't want to take. Like almost no one gets to live their entire life never working for someone that they disagree with their goals. There's also a sort of contradictory thing, which is that I think We've been talking a lot with the assumption that people are preloaded with a bunch of critiques of society and then they're making decisions in that context. But I think there's also a lot of people who become aware of critiques of society when they're already in a position. Like when I imagine the listener to this episode who is like, wow, I really needed to hear this, I'm thinking of someone who sort of came to the awakening that their job isn't what they thought it was when they were already in it. Um, And I think how people use that position. Is really, really fascinating, also, and deeply tied into discussion of like these creative boycotts and stuff like that. People who come to the conclusion that I didn't realize it, but I already sold out against my own conscience. So, like, what do I do now? Do I have to quit? And, like, I really sympathize with that question and feeling like very overwhelmed by all these ethical things. And my general tendency to that person is to think of what are the things within the position that you're in that can make a meaningful political difference around you. And whether that's advocating for the dying on the hill of the supply chain that your company is involved in, or whether it's the messages and narratives that are being put out in your environment and stuff like that. I think that sort of prodding thing is a really good thing to do in that context. Like when we think of the success of the Me Too movement or the movement for black liberation in the United States in particular, These are things that were pushed from sort of the grassroots on these institutions. And then you have PepsiCo saying Black Lives Matter, and it confuses people where they're like, the corporations support these LGBT rights, and there's like all this weird reactionary stuff that comes out of it. But the success of these movements come from people who were working at these corporations who, they might not have been a sleeper cell the whole time, but. Their ethics, their conscience was moved, and the hours that they put in to participate in whatever organizations meant that when they spoke up and said, hey, actually, this is important right now, I agree that we need to crack down on sexual assault in our organization. This is a real problem. The way that this sort of unfolds in practice, I think, is really complicated, and it's a mixture of people on the inside and outside that creates these sort of like big social moments.
0: Sean, sure, and I think that's such a rich point. I think if you look at like how change has happened at a lot of big companies, monopolies, over the last 10 years, it definitely seems like it's come from people who are already working in the company, sometimes their voices being allowed to be collectively louder and them sort of steering the way in which the brand is going or choosing not to go. So I think it's definitely not as black and white as I'm here or I'm not here. And I think you're right. A lot of people sometimes... Find themselves in these positions as opposed to sign up for these positions.
2: What I really love about that point is that it's very empowering, actually. And I feel like it sounds like one of those things people say about exercising like any small amount of exercise you do anytime w- is good for you. It doesn't matter if you're like an avid sports person or not, if you just did like a bit of yoga or a few sit ups now, it's good for you, right? So, like every minute bit of exercise you do is going to be good for you in some level. And it actually comes back to that thing is like no action is too small or no moment realizing that you want to make a stance or say something or have a discussion with a friend about something is too late how utopian is that thought
3: welcome to keyboard warrior radio theater Daily reminder, changing things from the inside does not work. You just end up another cog in the machine being sanded off until you perfectly fit. A vegan can't join a burger company and change it from the inside. The whole idea is absurd.
4: Humans aren't actually cogs, like physically. We're capable of much more dynamic changes. And even if organizations are trying to turn us into mere cogs, it's possible for us to push beyond our role and make a difference.
3: People are more susceptible to being swayed by money, protection, and the affiliation of power than people think. Giving our energy to their system is exactly what they want. Don't do it. We need to build our own organizations. We need to change things from the outside. I don't know of any
4: serious large scale strategy to change corporations from the inside as a leftist strategy in itself. And I'm not advocating for activists to put our resources into doing that ahead of other things. However, I think there are viable ways that people within institutions can use their position to help extract ethical concessions out of the workplace.
3: Look, I think you're right, there are instances where we can convince someone within some existing position to take some action that helps people, and we shouldn't completely rule that out. But even if you try to push beyond your role, these corporations select for pliable people and push out those who try to make change. Part of the job description is to not make change. I
4: think there's an unstated assumption here that what motivates people to take on a certain job or what brings people to a particular corporation is like a freely chosen marketplace of workplaces approach where people evaluate all possible uses of their time, all possible jobs, and then primarily try to make an ethical response to that coming from our own political perspective. And I don't think that's the case. I think the vast majority of people currently working in jobs of one kind or another get there through a process which is coerced by circumstances, contingency, limit opportunity, and so on, including people who agree with us. I think we need a narrative about, quote-unquote, changing from the inside, which isn't completely dismissive, even if it retains some of these critiques, that can help people conceive of their own responsibility within systems that they're already a part of and give them ideas on what to do to make those institutions more ethical.
3: Look, I can have sympathy for people who find themselves in these low-level positions at some big company and don't have much choice, but the idea that we should spend energy telling them to climb the ladder and change things within these horrible institutions is a waste of time. Little compromises build on one another, and before people even realize it, their intuitions and perspectives are changed by it. How about this way of helping people conceive of their own responsibility? Quit your evil job. If you can't quit it now, make plans for how you can quit it soon. Don't participate. Don't help them by giving them your labor for less than it's worth. Find something else. Do something else. And maybe sabotage them on the way out if you can. But that's it.
4: Don't you think that's putting a moralistic individualism in place of a systemic critique? In order to just willy-nilly, freely at any time, drop your job without even thinking about it, and how it affects your family and your community and your standing in the world is is the epitome of a privileged position. You're asking people to torch the references which could keep them healthy and employed in the future, to forego paychecks which keep a roof over their head in a system defined by its scarcity. Understanding that people's workplace decisions are largely not mediated by political ideology going in in the vast majority of circumstances. We need to give them a menu of political actions that includes quitting or abstention as part of a wider selection to show we're serious about thinking through this and to ensure that we can convince more people to participate in a variety of struggles for remaking society into an ecological and democratic one. We can't give them this harsh binary. It's not fair.
3: Where does this line of logic end? Where are the boundaries On who it is ethically neutral to work for. I'm not going to get mad at an Amazon factory worker for being exploited, but can we apply the same logic to the Amazon engineers who perfect and design the systems that are used to hold the other workers down, making way more money and having way more employment opportunities in the future and options in the first place? Should we just throw up our hands and say there's no moral question there because, you know, someone would do that job without them anyways. You know, it's, these justifications being deployed in real life for evil ends freaks me out. It's also a moralistic individualism in a way. Just get that bread becomes a good in itself, and we should have infinite forgiveness for individuals rather than holding true to a systemic critique.
4: I I agree. These are hard problems. And if we're going to be organizing for change as a political organization, I too am wary of advancing the idea that we're all going to go get jobs at Omnicorp and try to change things from the inside. That's not the political strategy I'm advocating. And there definitely needs to be a strong political movement from the outside, which is looking at the big picture and is making sure to not just look at the short-term interests of any individual worker trying to get by. But I just think that to write off entirely the idea that things can be changed from the inside, in some ways, sometimes, It's a type of like moralistic red line that will keep us from growing popular understanding and will limit our analysis in ways that might make it that we can't achieve what we need to. That, if anything, is going to turn people away and make them not take us seriously. They'll think we're being unfair and they'll side more cleanly with the institutions as a result of it. We can't be naive activists seeking some foolish idea of purity.
3: What's naive is thinking that it's gonna work this time. We know from history that changing things from the inside does not work. And we're not gonna get everybody on our side by following a bad strategy that has been proven not to work and that compromises our morals to even participate in. You need a wake-up call, okay? You can't just
4: say prove not to work and just like appeal to this vague, evidenceless thing. It's just there's hundreds of instances you can find where positive change happened that involve people who are on the insides of system making decisions. I feel like you're not listening to me and I can feel this is getting elevated from an interesting discussion to now a heated battle of online wills because you're being so uncharitable. It's getting my back up.
3: I'm being uncharitable, you said I was foolish, seeking purity, and I agree that this is changing to a polarizing internet personality conflict, but it's your fault. You made the first asshole move.
4: It's an asshole move to start a thread like this in the first place, friendly reminder. That's neither friendly nor is it a reminder. Not everyone knows that and it wasn't made in a friendly way. I think I might start insulting you now because I'm multitasking while having this discussion on my phone and my patience is decreasing as I feel insulted.
3: Typical, typical. Uh, I'm gonna dig in my heels and become less likely to consider your position.
4: Well, I'm digging my heels in, and I'm not just less likely to consider your position. I'm being radicalized against it, because I feel like you're being a
3: jerk. No, I'm being radicalized against your position. You're confirming everything I ever thought badly about the people who hold your position. It's personal now. Do you hear that noise? That's my heels going deeper. Your heels are deep in sand. Mine are deep in rock. My heels are going so
4: deep. They're like a jackhammer moving me closer and closer to the earth's core. I'm just shooting downwards faster than you could even imagine. Getting so radicalized against your position.
3: And we'll see you next time for another episode of Keyboard Warrior Radio Theater.
4: We now go to a group of friends returning to their old bar for the third time that week.
0: It's yeah. great to
3: see you along. Hey, how you doing? More
0: margaritas, please.
3: Shots all around the table. Yes. Uh, look at you, Sean, ordering shots. Is that because of the job that Tribe was able to get you at Omnicorp recently? Well, yeah. <laughs> I definitely couldn't afford it before. <laughs> <laughs> Can now boom 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 boom.
1: How are you finding it? It's not that bad, right?
4: No, it's great. Yeah, no, I'm working sort of artistically, typefaces, graphs, that sort of stuff. It's totally my wheelhouse. Here come the
3: nachos. Yay! Hey. Hey. Oh, it's super popular.
2: Five toppings. This is a fun day out.
3: Oh, an extra guac too. Mm.
4: Amazing. <laughs> you know, these nachos were actually kind of paid for. OmniCorp not paying for the chemical spill because they were able to pay me a lot.
1: See, it worked out in a way. Oh,
0: yeah. So it all
4: goes around. It
0: worked out. But I think you just had nothing to do with that.
4: I think you just worked for the company. No, yeah. And like later and I mean, well, during the litigation, obviously, we both worked for the company.
1: The only thing I did was to proofread some articles released on the topic.
4: You know, I did typesetting for pamphlets that are being handed out to some of the victims of the chemical spill, explaining the lack of liability on behalf of Omnicorp. And it just like took 15 minutes or whatever. And it was just like a small part of my day. But I was like, "Oh, there it is." I mean, I guess it makes sense to do typesetting on this too. But if not me, then someone else, obviously. Exactly. I feel like my hands are clean.
1: Yeah, and I, and I think that it's good that the family gets to know from Omnicorp their perspective on how it happened you know right i mean it doesn't work that they just have lawyers you know pointing out all these things and oh you should sue you should sue i heard it
0: was a terrible accident completely out of anyone's control
3: yeah i read that News Corp daily article as well about it being an accident oh yeah no tough these things
4: happen though
1: And I've got some news. I feel like this now is a bit of a cliche, but I have been offered a promotion. Another one? I know. I mean, I've been doing really well, innit? it? So it's about writing sales content for their arms deal side of things, for the prospective buyers of their guns and weapons and
4: military equipment. And you'll be so good at that selling weapons yeah with that journalist silver tongue
1: i it's obviously something that is different but they are talking close to a six-figure figure.
4: Wow,
3: that's life-changing. Yeah, yeah, what you've been able to achieve there, Tribe, moving up in the company, is really admirable.
1: Yeah,
0: totally, especially as I know the first few weeks you were really on the fence about whether you'd stay or not, right? I'm so glad you got over those moral conundrums. Now you're just thriving, look at you.
1: Yeah, I struggled a little bit with my own perspective. I mean, you notice things when you're new to somewhere and it's about trying to ensure you stay true to yourself, but at the same time getting with the company vibe and I'm just riding that ticket all the way to the top.
3: Obviously selling weapons to people its in a vacuum, I don't think it's what any of us would want to be doing.
4: Right, in a vacuum.
3: Maybe after you've been writing for them for a while helping to sell these weapons and stuff, you could work your way up that ladder and then convince them to sell fewer weapons in the future, like down the line and save way more lives in the future.
1: I mean, I don't know realistically.
3: I'm just saying it's possible that could happen.
1: Because it seems a bit counter to what they're about. You know, if I start doing bad at my sales, then they won't make as much money, I guess. I think the key thing is convincing people why we need these weapons. One of the bonuses I get from my job is that I would get to travel a lot. I mean, it might be to some challenging countries, but I get to meet loads of people and see how weapons can benefit these countries. Right. Why these weapons would be good for, let's say, the Saudi Arabian government or nice you know, put down any kind of coups. So there's, there's pros to, to my
4: job. And that's such interesting knowledge to have is what countries might benefit from buying weapons from Omnicorp. And that's not something they teach you in school. That's not something you're going to be reading in The Guardian.
1: Exactly. Exactly. I mean, some of these countries, you know, there's rebel groups that might need to be put down, you know, and restore the democracy, you know, like what the US and the UK have been trying to do. So if anything, I am helping contribute to democracy around the world.
3: I saw that article in News Corp Daily as well, too. They actually quoted a small child saying Thank you, Omnicorp, for sending weapons to my country. You saved me and my family. That really touched me, so I was like, oh.
1: Yeah, Yeah. it's part of the positive sides that Omnicorp tries to get out there, you know, so that people hear two sides of the story. I think it's important, and and I'm glad to be a part of it.
2: Oh my god, that is too cute. Do you know what else is really cute? They have baby turtles on the menu. But it is quite expensive. But maybe, you know, if one day we can share a plate between us. Yeah.
4: Oh my god. Oh, that's so cute. Baby turtles. Yeah,
2: sounds so exotic. Maybe
4: after I get my pay raise. <laughs>
2: <laughs> oh, wait. Sorry, I've misread. Baby turtle flavored crisps. But I would still like to try those crisps. Must be interesting. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah. Oh, They save the real baby turtles for the really fancy places I've heard anyway. <laughs>
1: I mean, once I get this promotion, maybe I will get a membership to the club where they sell these
4: baby turtles.
1: (gasps) Never say never. and obviously Rona, plus one. Plus one over
4: here. (laughs) Yep, I guess everything's working out just fine for us, a little group of friends. Working out just fine. I am sleeping perfectly, like a baby. Here's for another round.
1: Yeah. Down.
4: I think there's also a really big risk here, and this is what I've seen in my closest brush with institutions of power and stuff, is there's this real risk of people when they feel that dissonance between who they think they are and how they think they're being perceived because of their participation in like an organization. When people start to feel that gap, it's so uncomfortable that unfortunately some people start to identify with the institution and start to think that the people who are making ethical demands of the world are unreasonable and they need to grow up and, you know, get a salary job like I have and yada, yada. And like, they're just simply not serious. So I just really emphasize that like that dissonance. If you felt it is a result of sort of like your um, capacity for ethics and like your own discomfort with something is something that you should follow instead of reject. And that generally speaking, what I've learned from participating in politics uh, and leftist politics for 10 years is that people don't always say it in the nicest way. But when it comes to like these sort of like social justice critiques, they're almost always pretty right. Like There's a a lot wrong with the world. And that doesn't mean that you have to quit your job. And it doesn't mean that you have to like throw away everything in the world that you have that brings you joy or anything like that. Politics isn't about forsaking everything in your life that makes it enjoyable. But you should try to like think ethically and reason about what your responsibility is. And like Danielle was saying, like, what little bit can you do? And if you do a little bit and you don't get in, in trouble for doing a little bit, you push a little further and see what happens. You're working for Disney Corporation. You're doing set decoration. You're putting some interesting books in the background. You're getting away with it. There's all sorts of whatever context you're in. There's a million different ways that that could unfold. The times I've seen people collapse in the direction of identifying with the institution too much are times where I sort of feel like I've seen, you know, people turn to the dark side. When you're engaging with institutions like the military or these enormous corporations and you're getting paid for it, you're flirting with your own worst instincts. You're flirting with your own ability to like turn a blind eye to things inherently. So there's a real chance that something that's making you uncomfortable is something that is important to listen to.
3: I really like that point because I think if you're going into a situation like this that might be compromising, pay attention to what you're feeling about it and don't kind of like shut that down because those negative emotions, that's what you need to listen to to kind of like know whether or not you're crossing boundaries of your own line.
4: And that's why also I suggested earlier talking to friends about it. I feel like there's a lot of value in and it's something maybe that we're missing in culture is like creating spaces to have these critical conversations, especially if you're the ones being offered contracts, like deciding whether or not to take a contract is like an individual decision. And then it's up to someone to actually be like, Hey, I think you shouldn't have taken that contract. And then it's almost something you have to be sort of like embarrassed of or like defensive if people bring up and stuff. And then it's like this conflict between people. Like, I feel like part of the selling out discourse is rooted in this sort of like fear of what other people think. And I think that fear of what other people think can really be best remedied by having these ethical conversations with your friends around your own experiences and come to group conclusions together and have it be sort of a normal part of our lives to engage in ethical deliberation together about the opportunities that are being afforded to us, trying to create spaces of like non judgment and exploration. So whatever decision you end up making, it's a decision that you can be comfortable with because making a decision that you end up being not comfortable with, I think can actually end up compromising you in the long term.
0: I think I would agree with you, Sean. When I was thinking about like selling out, I had a a difficulty with, because I do think the whole worry with selling out is one about how other people see you and also how you will perceive yourself. And I think so much of it is about us trying to make a stand about the sort of world we want to see around us and you know the sort of things that we want to support and i wonder actually how far like just declining or choosing to say no is actually doing what we intend to do which is make a stand whether it goes far enough to say like i'm not going to personally take this to sort of like send your no and let that be the end of it or whether it's a case of like making more noise around the fact that you're not doing certain things which does seem quite burdensome when you think about individual creators or like freelancers having to do
1: this themselves. I think it, main, it definitely depends on the individual as well, as we've been saying. I do know some creatives have baked into their brand that they have this particular political and moral stance in the way that they operate. And sometimes they do make it a big kind of show and tell about the fact that they've turned down certain opportunities because of their position. But I do think it is definitely down to the individual creative and how it sits with them, whether they can financially get by without taking that opportunity or whether they would take the opportunity and use that money for other things it, and whether they can sit with that decision at the end of the day.
3: I think if you have a platform, if you're a public figure, then your choice to say no can have more effect if you're willing to make that part of your brand and to talk about it widely also in creative fields sometimes you're being offered like a lot of money in ways that like caterers and gas station workers aren't and the more money you're getting for something the less likely it is that you need this just to survive like it's just your job like the gas station worker
2: And I just feel like this thing comes into that sphere of like being an influencer and, you know, obviously we've just had the Olympics and I think of athletes trying to make a stand or boycott or trying to deliver a message through who they are or through their social profiles in uh, aligning with their own ethical alliances. But then obviously they are like contracted in certain ways and prohibited in certain ways to make those stand. And even really big Olympic medalist athletes, I don't think necessarily their paycheck is totally stable, you know? I would say like collective action. I think when you look
0: at the boycotts of history, like the really big ones, collective action is so core to that. So, you know, there is this tendency even before influencers to propel like whoever seems like they're they're at the forefront of a movement to like the position of, you know, a leader or something like that. And in today's day and age, it might feel like it's more like the influencer type of person. But I think of the fact that the Me Too movement was founded by a woman who just tweeted something. So I don't think it always has to be connected to like, I don't know, amplifying your own profile. I think it's more about getting people to talk about something specifically. Something that comes to mind is the whole like boycott of Burberry that happened a few years ago, and that was based on the fact that Burberry was like burning its clothes. And the reason that they said they were doing that was to contain and maintain the brand value. So rather than you know massively discount the clothes or have them be sold through other channels outside the store, they were like, let's just burn the clothes. And they've been doing this for years. And you know, it took people speaking out and calling out Burberry's actions, ridiculing it on social media collectively, for Burberry to decide that they were going to change. I don't think that was connected to a famous person. So I think we shouldn't get tied to that. I think it should just be more about the action that we want to see from it as opposed to the platform that we think we already have or don't have. And I guess also what you were talking about in respects to getting more money sort of connects to that too. It's like you pay an art director a lot of money because you feel like they're doing something Quite pivotal to whatever it is you're trying to sell. Whereas I guess, unfortunately, we still look at front of house people as being quite replaceable and their input being slightly less, though they obviously are the people who keep the businesses running. You know, if all the workers of the Disney shop decided to walk out tomorrow, then Disney would have a problem.
1: As we were talking, I remembered this idea called interest convergence. I know a lot of people have spoken about it in reference to critical race theory, but it has been applied in various fields. It's the idea that sometimes the law or institutions or companies don't change their practices or perspectives until it has an effect on them or the bottom line. It's quite interesting if we think about the range of ways in which companies don't necessarily change their position until it becomes the popular position. Like I remember watching a video where some guy did an analysis of how Mike came to the realisation that it was better to support Colin Kaepernick because that's the direction of the youth as opposed to going in the opposite direction. So I just thought it's quite an interesting where It's not necessarily... In individuals taking a moral stance, but the bottom line of the company and, and how much it's hitting them maybe in the pocket or in the direction that they want to go in.
4: Yeah. And I think that's the same principle. It like, it applies across the board in terms of these institutions that only respond to like the profit mechanism. We just recently had an episode on our show where we spoke to some experts on this concept of the capital strike, which is like ways that business sector can hold politicians hostage and threaten to like not stimulate the economy and make it look bad and stuff like that. And their big like takeaway that they were advising to us as activists was that you just need to make it really expensive to not listen to you. Like it doesn't matter how ethical, like you could be showing them the most horrific pictures in the world, you know, and like we all know how what factory farms look like. The hot dogs are still on the shelves because it's more expensive to change over to a a different system, but it would be possible to. And I mean, I think in the U.S. they do all sorts of like they have laws against like filming factory farms and stuff for exactly this reason. As activists and people trying to make social change for these institutions that are amoral and are looking at quarterly profits as their main thing, you got to make it expensive for them to not listen to you. And I think what we saw with Kaepernick and, and with Me Too and a variety of things over the last, you know, five, 10 years or so was that there was this really populist sort of uprising. It wasn't. Organized and it was all sort of individuals mediated through the internet and in these like collective, not decision making spaces, but th- these collaborative commons of people sharing information with each other, sharing experiences, and seeing perspectives that they maybe ne- would have never seen on television if it weren't for the internet. And that sort of critical mass of individuals then puts pressures on these institutions where Gillette's like, okay, we're gonna uh, put a trans person in a Gillette ad because we, you know, look at the way things are going. Like, it's gonna be more expensive if we hold out on some, you know, fictional old world idea of gender, like we just need to get ahead of it. I think it goes to show that even just having these small conversations, like Daniela referred to as like, There's no conversation that's too small to contribute to a social change. And that's what happened around Copernic. And that's what happened around all these things is that people are having these conversations or like when it comes to me too, and people are like, I had that experience. And then people who had no idea that they had that experience know they had that experience and it changes the way they see the world. And it happens in this decentralized sort of like bubbling forth kind of way. Sean,
0: what you've said reminded me of what happened with the North Carolina bathroom bill. It was like the bill which was intended to stop like trans people being able to use bathrooms that didn't align with like the sex on their birth certificate sort of thing. But that was massively spoken about through people's personal channels and stuff like that. And companies like PayPal and also like the sports league companies started like basically taking out their money from the actual North Carolina state. And that was the reason uh, or one of the biggest catalysts for why the state decided to like rescind the bill. So you think to yourself about like the level of power that actually these really small things on the surface of it can actually have when they're like accumulated. And corporations, you know, also start to listen to them and start to act upon them. As opposed to now, we're having to, to fight the corporations. It's them doing the work for us because they want to win us over as consumers. So.
4: And it's really interesting politically because you can almost imagine an environment where there's all these different bodies with different interests and you might not, if you want to change what Disney's doing, maybe you don't actually have to make it expensive for Disney. Maybe you're making it expensive for the caterers and then the caterers aren't going to feed people for a week and not feeding people for a week is causing everyone to rise up. Or you, <laughs> or if you want to change what a city hall is doing, like then you you might want to actually target the local business association with your campaign and stuff like that it's a fascinating kind of complex universe of different pressures. But yeah, I think the the common denominator really is like, how do you come together? And then how do you make it expensive for them? Because turning down a job as an individual is not really expensive for them. It costs less than taking the job for them. Actually, you can maybe say there's an argument to take the job and just do a really shitty job until they fire you, because that actually would cost them a bit of money. We now go back to the out-of-touch bosses of Media Monopolies complaining about their workers demanding paltry rights while eating a luxurious feast.
2: Mm, those baby turtles. What did you guys think?
3: I can't believe that that specific species of turtles is almost extinct. It uh, just makes it taste better. Honestly, I've had better. I think all
4: of the good baby turtles may have already been eaten. Oh.
2: Don't even say that. Mm. The thought of it makes me depressed.
4: You know, I was thinking it is just so wonderful how systematically, you know, these people who are demanding rights from us, they're sort of between like a rock and a hard place where they need to make these moral compromises in order to make ends meet. And then they actually have to go and defend those choices to other people.
3: Yeah, the worst is the ones who haven't had that drilled into them yet. They're still idealistic. They think that what they do matters. Yes,
0: totally. Those poor, mindless individuals don't seem to understand that, you know, these small little things they try to do don't really have that much effect. I mean, you can walk all you want and cycle all you want to work. I'm still going to jet around the world.
3: Yeah, it's a strange kind of egotism that they have, that they think that they can make a difference in these systems that are so much bigger than them, you know? I I couldn't understand it myself.
2: What I find most laughable, guys, is, you know, these people, they have graduate degrees in communication, but they don't seem to do a lot of that between themselves. I mean, if only they could put some of that studying to good use and just talk among themselves, maybe they could actually have some new chairs, you know, like if 10 of them asked for it. Yes,
3: don't give them any ideas. I hope there's nobody around here listening. The waiter might hear.
2: Oh, I'll see to that.
3: What
4: we always say at my firm is, it doesn't matter how many of you get together asking for new chairs, we'll never budge. That's our line and we're sticking to it.
2: Oh, you're right. Must be the wine getting to me, what was I even thinking?
4: So how do you guys crack down on artists' unions?
2: It's just a hard no in my department. Anybody who brings that word up is executed on site.
3: I like to have eyes and ears all over the organization, listening, you know, sometimes even planting the idea to see if anybody bites and then if they do do, you know, quietly zoot them out.
2: Mm, I love that subtle approach. You're you're basically an artist.
3: The union honey trap. I hadn't heard
4: that before. I'm going to have to give that a try. Cheers.
0: And you know, your name is everything and your reputation is everything. So if I send a bad word out about you, it's not going to be easy for you to get another
3: role. I'll tell you that much. Absolutely. And I got your list of uh, troublesome employees. They've all been blacklisted at my companies as well.
2: Oh, can I get a copy of that too? Yeah, totally. Mm, thanks, babe.
3: <laughs> yes. <you're laughs>
4: They're hired to draw the little pictures, not to uh, cause any trouble. <laughs> if, they, if they start talking about the union stuff, they start talking about these nice chairs, time off. And the second that there's any little touch of trouble, then out. Goodbye. You know, I walk by three or four artists on the way to the office every day playing their banjo. And you're going to be doing graphic design at the corner of the street
3: yeah. for Bill's. I mean, you know, to be fair, sometimes if the demand is small enough and it's annoying enough to have to keep saying no, sometimes you throw them a bone. It's more for our sake than for their sake, but it does happen. I can't lie. I can't say I've never offered those types of concessions, even though I'd like to say there's a hard line. Sometimes if they make enough noise, you do have to Uh, You know.
2: Here we go again. I thought we'd put a stop to that kind of thought earlier tonight.
0: No, 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 but he does have a point. Offering them the bone is a good strategy. I tell you, I've used it myself. Sometimes you just need to give them a bit of butter, make them feel you've listened to their demands. Slowly, the noise goes away. It's the perfect solution, I tell you guys. Don't, Don't undermine it.
3: Yeah, if they've spent five years asking for new chairs, and then finally, eventually they give in what is that sending the message but you know it's going to take another five years if you want those longer breaks you're asking for
4: just between us you know high high powered media moguls if they start affecting my profits with their actions then yeah i'm going to be looking towards throwing them a bone but if they're not affecting the bottom line and we can keep it that way with no new chairs that's what i'm doing for sure
2: Okay, fine. They can have the chairs instead of the longer breaks. Maybe that's where the compromise, the, frankly, outrageously generous compromise that we could think about.
3: Comfortable chairs like having a break. Exactly.
2: I mean, it's just pushing food around a plate, isn't it? We just have to be clever about it. The chairs, it needs to be funded somehow, and maybe it comes out of the cafeteria kitty. You have to make these choices. Do they want chairs or do they want weak old coffee?
4: That's the perfect choice to offer them. I would offer them that choice directly. Just let them know, you know, it's very tight around here. Don't let them know about all the profit, obviously. It's very tight around here. If you want these new chairs, then we're going to have to sacrifice daily fresh coffee. Which do you choose? And then if they if
3: they take the chairs, then we pull that coffee back. Yeah, these are kinds of considerations... You know, taking one thing away while giving another or giving on one issue while, oh, two weeks later, there's a whole new set of directives from HR that they don't like it. But you're going to complain after we just gave you new chairs. There's ways to use all of this to our benefit. It's been a delightful dinner and invigorating conversation.
4: And I'm ready to go back to the workplace and crush any sort of worker or organizing that happens to arise.
0: Me too. They don't know how much we do for them.
2: I was actually thinking of going out for a walk to take in the view, maybe have some champagne before dinner. Does anyone care to join me in that instead? Oh,
3: yes, please. I could definitely use some champagne. What the heck? Count me in as well. Let me just book it in as another business meeting.
2: Of course. I'm sure we'll be talking about our disorderly employees some more.
4: And so their tireless day full of business meetings trotted on, without thanks, as usual. Their workers never appreciated the hard work they did for them. I was trying to think of like what the utopian angle is. So the utopian methodology would be like imagining what you want the end game to be, like what would a just society look like, and then try to like figure out like what might the first step between now and that utopian society look like. And when I think of an ideal society, I think of a directly democratic world that doesn't overextend beyond our environmental limits and where everyone gets the support they need and every voice matters. I take that to be sort of, I guess, the preconditions of utopia. So thinking of like those principles in the current day, it seems like a lot of the things that we've been talking about here all relate to some of the tensions between collective responsibilities that we create and believe in, like following our ethical compass and the individual choices that we have in our lives and like individual sort of responsibilities to maintain yourself. So I always try to think of like, how can a difference that seems like a weakness actually be a difference that is mutually reinforcing and strong. And maybe it could be that the people who are within these systems who are able to get these larger paychecks from these institutions that earlier when people were talking, I imagine almost this sort of like creative aristocracy where there's like all these super low wage creative workers who get like no contracts at all or like fighting for scraps here. And then there's sort of like the privileged beneficiaries of these systems who are able to get up on the higher ends of this ladder where Disney's giving them a million dollars or whatever. Whatever as an individual, how do we bring that event into something where it can be part of a collective struggle? And it, I can sort of imagine the creation of, say, like collective decision-making organizations, creative union structures to weigh in the ethics and responsibilities of ethics as a group, and then also sort of create standards for how people in different positions within this sort of like creative sphere can be supportive of each other empower people who have less opportunities to say no, to exercise saying no, or to have more ethical opportunities, but also to decrease the gap between the creatives at the top and other creatives.
1: I really like your idea of a union for creatives. I know in the UK, there's this thing called the tuck system, where a lot of immigrants who came to this country, like in the Caribbean community, because they were often refused bank mortgages, they would get together and basically pull their money together and each month someone will take out of it to kind of help save up towards getting a mortgage. But adapting this to this utopian idea of where uh, freelancers uh, of the creative kind could use the money that they've gotten to give back to the community for people who are maybe lower down in the pyramid. I also wanted to bring up this concept. I don't know if you heard about this. It's the German military is one of the only militaries in the world where they are allowed to walk away from an order in terms of like if they were ordered to, let's say, execute or anything like that. And it's kind of baked into their, what they call the Bundeswehr. I'm probably saying this wrong. And we can all imagine why they have that as a a thing they're allowed to do, but they're allowed to kind of say, hey, this doesn't, Agree with my moral or ethical position and are allowed to walk away with it. Whilst, in I guess, many other countries, that would be considered, I guess, some sort of uh,
4: insubordination.
1: Yeah, insubordination. That's it.
4: I was just reading this book, Humankind by Rutger Bregman, which is about why people are actually good and stuff. And he made this really fascinating point about the Milgram experiment. It's like this famous social psychology experiment where people thought they were electrocuting someone to death, where they tell them you keep need to keep on increasing the electricity. And they found like some really high amount of people would go through with it and turn up the electricity thinking that they were potentially electrocuting someone to death because a scientist was telling them to. And they can hear screaming. Yeah. It turns out that in the surveys they did afterwards, some people thought it was fake the whole time. And among the people who thought it was real, much less people would go through with it. And then people say, But the really interesting thing he said is if you look at the people who successfully said no, rejected the offer and rejected electrocuting people any further, if you look for the pattern and what they did, they went through like a predictable series of things. But I don't actually, I was just trying to search it, but I don't have it in front of me what the series of things were.
2: Oh, you can't do that to our listeners. That's horrific.
4: (laughs) Okay. Yeah, here, I've got it. Thank God. So in 2015, psychologist Matthew Hollander reviewed the taped recording of the 117 sessions at Milgram's shock machine. After an extensive analysis, he discovered the pattern. What the people who said no always did was... They would, number one, try to talk to the victim through the wall, try to establish contact with the person who is affected by it. Number two, remind the man in the gray lab coat of his ethical responsibility to do what is right, the person who is giving you the directions. And number three, repeatedly refuse to continue altogether, just say no. So these three things of just repeatedly saying no, talking to the people who are affected by it directly, and reminding the people who are ordering you to do unethical things of their responsibility seems to be the the component pieces of rejecting unjust orders. If you read between the lines of the famous Milgram shock experiment to the people who successfully said no.
0: That's really interesting. I think this whole idea of speaking to the person across the world is something that we forget, but actually in trying to fight things, you almost have to find who's being negatively affected by it. You can't fight a baddie without understanding the perspective of the people who are being harmed through it.
2: Can I just come back to this point about unionizing? Unionizing for me is like about pay and treatment. And what earlier you were sort of talking about is almost like unionizing in a sense of like, what do we want to do or not do for that money. And so I think it's a really interesting evolution, potentially, of this idea of what unionizing can mean in different spheres or the different functions they can perform.
3: I think that if there was a type of like creatives union to fight for and then protect the ability of creatives to have this ability to say no, like a conscientious objector to participating in this military ad, you can't fire me. I also
0: think that way like we could have more of an impact on like business to business relationships. I'm thinking about like there was a, a news story a few years ago which surrounded like loads of arts organizations in the UK. One was like the Tate Modern which is like a great art cultural space but they were being funded by BP. I think a union could also help to raise public consciousness. To some of these things that are going on behind the scenes, sometimes between companies that the average person isn't even aware of. But you could obviously have people who I'd imagine would be like specialists when it comes to like legalities and understand contracts and understand where money comes from, who would have like an overview of that. Whereas sometimes as an individual, it's really hard for you to like do all that investigating yourself.
4: Yeah. Especially if you need money really bad.
2: Definitely. And I think that's a really good point because we have been so far talking about like knowing who it is you're working on for and where that money is coming from. And to bring in the point of art is so true because oftentimes these grants that are given out to artists, you go to exhibitions, you know, it's a small pin on the board of like, oh, this has been funded by BP or, you know, Unilever, but there's not like somebody's paying you to work As part of their organization, you're a beneficiary of their wealth, but maybe like art washing, that kind of sense.
4: There's a tendency in a lot of long term existing unions today to be focused on things like working your way up a benefit schedule, working your way to higher wages and stuff like that. There's some interesting history there about this tension between radical anti-capitalist unions and sort of like modern institutional unions. I would butcher the history if I went into it, but part of the reason why the fight for like higher wages and stuff like that is really popular in unions is because it's what everyone sort of agrees that they need. They want more wages, but unions can really sort of fight for anything that members want coming together, theoretically speaking, I think we should really open the door to considering the possibility of unions as organizations that can make demands that are beyond even just getting higher wages or getting better benefits and one of the things that a creative union could do in addition to like ensuring set rates that people work for that people aren't exploited that people have access to like group insurance and stuff like that those will all be possibilities if people are giving away part of their income from this work towards the union sort of pot for spending on these things but like we were talking earlier about how contractors now have these ethical decisions put on them when they're working as individuals but the union could actually take on this moral responsibility that we're talking about as well. Like people can participate in contracts like this in an organized way that's ethically mediated through collective decision making institutions. The members of the union could participate in deliberating and figuring out where they could make demands if they stand together. And this is something that Rona mentioned earlier is like an individual boycott doesn't really do very much you know, I hate the Heinz ketchup. I stopped buying Heinz ketchup. It's what $3 every month that they're not going to see anymore because of my individual choice. Boycotts work when people come together and work together and all do it at once. Okay. We're all not going to buy this ketchup next month. And then it becomes a thousand dollars. And there's even more of us. We're all not buying this ketchup. Now it's a million dollars. And you're building up to the point where the economic costs of them not listening to your political demands are too great. So Heinz finally, you know, stops doing whatever they were doing, you know, some, some, A horrible thing that they were doing in this hypothetical scenario. Union drives do a sort of similar thing, which is that they slowly build pressure over time on the bosses, starting with smaller things, little sort of like intimidating kind of things, like everyone wearing a union pin, they're like, oh shit, maybe they're going to do something. And then they're like delivering a petition being like, we want higher wages. And like, you're building up to the ability to strike. And it's like this sort of dialectical process of getting everyone involved in the effort towards an end that they all agree on and then slowly building up that pressure to the bosses to achieve it. I think this problem with this idea is that it's really hard to do and takes a lot of steps. But like it actually does address a lot of, I think, some of these nooks and crannies that we've been talking about, about the differences of people in different fields, the differences and opportunities, the inability to say no, and creates a collective ethical framework that people can sort of get some economic benefit of the stability and the the rule sets and so on by committing to a certain ethical basis. But it only works if you come together. So it only works if it's more than just one person. An individual influencer saying, I got offered this X and X job. I said no. And th- these are the reasons why. That could explode into something that has a popular sort of outcry in a disorganized way. But it really can't compare to that person being part of an organization that is making coherent collective ethical demands and engaging in a step of turning up the heat over time on the people who make decisions in society. That to me strikes me as sort of the utopian praxis, the utopian procedure for taking these decisions and these ethical responsibilities out of the individual realm and putting them into a realm where we can sort of stand together, support each other, and help sort of shape the ethical direction of society.
1: There's also got to be, I guess, a level of consistent agreement on what is being boycotted because what might be morally or ethically okay for one individual and they're like, yeah, I don't mind. I, I, don't, I don't stand for this situation, but I'm okay with this. It's not that deep. And another person could be like, no, this is absolutely, you know, indefensible and terrible and we need to get together and we need to stick together on this. And so it with more people doing it, you need more people to agree that this is the stance and this is what we all agree on.
2: And I think that's actually one of the things that comes down very hard and difficult in conversation because I think just as in campaigning or in your daily life and your choices as a consumer, people have different emphasis on where they want to make a stand or there's some topics that are more engaged with than others. So whether it's like what they eat. Is it organic? Or maybe they are thinking more about plastics. It's just so impossible to sort of cover all those bases, just in a brain capacity sense, let alone, you know, financially support those actions. So that, I think, just further complicates the decision-making process. I
3: actually think that's a potential benefit of having some kind of collective group making these decisions is that It is so hard to prioritize all of these different things yourself. But if we set up an organization in the first place, founding the group on principles that take into account as many perspectives as possible and align itself with the broadest range of struggles possible to listen to those affected across the table, like the Milgram experiment, is going to help align the moral compass in the right direction because we'll be listening to and standing together with the most amount of people possible.
2: That was an amazing conversation, guys. Yeah, really enjoyed that. Yeah, thank you, guys.
4: It's been really fun. Yeah, I think it was great. Likewise. Yeah, thanks for reaching out to us. We now go to a group of friends going out for drinks for the first time at the bar that has baby turtles on the menu
2: hey guys
4: hey Hey, look
3: around us we did it we're here
0: this place looks so beautiful you were the person who led the way and look now here we all are eating baby turtle (laughs) we made it
2: in the world i'm so glad i came out for a drink with you guys because before this i was not gonna lie feeling a bit i don't know it's a dirty word
1: depressed yeah i heard things have been difficult like what's been happening with you oh you know what
2: all of that is behind me now as i'm joining you guys
4: congratulations on the new job by the way
2: i've heard that at omnicorp things can look up real quick if you work hard you know those eight day weeks didn't know that was a thing until i arrived yeah
4: well i hear that you're the brightest new face in poison division Who me? That's what I'm hearing.
2: Wow, I thought I was just bringing coffee to people and, you know, writing a couple of lines here and there. I don't get clearance to know exactly what I'm writing for. Yeah, you get to know
1: the lingo. Sometimes the way that they word the departments aren't necessarily exactly what you're doing, but you get used to it. You get used to it. Plus, you don't need to know the ins and outs of
0: everything. Oh, really? It's all just part of working in a wide team. Do you know what you mean? That's good to know.
3: Yeah, look, Daniela, you're still new to the company. We all went through this. We all had our worries. But I mean, especially with how difficult the last few years were for you, you lost your house, you lost a lot of stuff, but you'll be able to get it back now that you're earning again. You know, things are looking up for you now. That's the headline from where I'm at.
2: Yeah, I did want a baby really badly, but I can always try again. I wouldn't focus on stuff like
0: that, babes. Our workplace is not that into maternity leave and stuff like that.
2: Obviously, we
0: want to inspire business women and like having a baby. I mean, Mm. how would you work eight days a week?
2: Yeah, you're probably right. You're probably right. Being part of
0: Omnicorp World's production is fabulous. You know, I just got myself my own Blue Room membership. No longer have to tag on to you, tribe. (laughs) (laughs) Obviously I used to work at an independent small place where you work for charities and stuff like this. But the global corporate side is really where the excitement's at.
3: I just convinced my division to add a small one percent safety margin on top of the allowable failure rate for the safety gear that we sell so you know a certain amount of people are going to die from it but i've decreased the margin slightly so i feel great about it well that's making a difference
1: it's those small changes
2: right Yeah,
3: exactly and i just put a down payment on a house
1: but isn't
2: it quite a lot of responsibility i don't want to be crass but you guys are making loads of money you're in charge of so many departments your press releases go out to so many families you know i feel like being so influential it's a lot of responsibility i don't know if i would ever be ready for that
4: well the great thing about it is you have so little choice In these roles, you know, there actually isn't that much individual agency that goes into it. It's like it's just got this kind of robotic logic, you know, like someone wants to take money from the company or hold us legally liable for chemicals in the water or whatever, you know, causing whatever issue. Allegedly, our role, it's not even, you know, you're not being paid to think you're being paid to get a press release out there that is going to minimize the impact of that sort of allegation.
1: Well, I think you think for the company, there's always going to be some family, some groundswell freedom charity that wants to sue our organization or our business. And when you think about the bonuses and the money that can be affected by it all in the end, the bottom line for our investors, that's why it's better to kind of... Remove yourself a little bit from the ground of things and think about the bigger picture of our organization or our company.
3: If I do any thinking at all, I just think WWTIW, what would the investors want? Because that's what really mm-hmm. matters.
0: And you know what they'd want? To keep budgets down.
4: So that's my specialism. And you're great at
3: it.
0: Ugh. Thank you.
3: (laughs) You
4: cut so much fat around my department when you fired those people.
0: (laughs) There's one thing I hate is people who keep the team back. Oh, so selfish.
2: A few years ago, there was that drug that had to do with, you know, pregnant women's health. And that kind of didn't go very well. But so you guys weren't involved with that. You you couldn't have done anything to stop that drug from being... Circulated before it was ready?
3: No, well, I mean... I mean,
4: from my understanding... I think that's still under investigation, I'm not sure. Although, we take it very seriously.
3: Yeah. I did see some preliminary reports that suggested what allegedly happened would happen. And I did do what was protocol with those reports, which was not release them to the public because they weren't certain. That didn't have anything to do with your thing with the baby, did it? I mean... Never mind. Yeah, Um,
2: no, I don't know. It's hard to tell with these things. Life is wondrous and mysterious. How can we tell what's happened?
3: Right. Yeah.
1: And there's so many people in the whole chain of things. I mean, it's hard to really pin it
3: down on anyone, really. Yeah, I mean, if I didn't ignore those reports, they would have just hired someone else to ignore those reports, right? That's what we're saying when we say Mm. it's not really our choice. It's like either do what the company wants or you get fired. It's, you know, you got to kind of not be so egotistical about it and think about what the company needs.
2: Oh yeah, you're right. I'm definitely thinking from a very, very personal point of view. It's just
1: bigger picture thinking. That's all it is. That's what it boils down to.
4: It's an education of life.
1: Yeah. Oh, Guys, I
2: feel so grateful to have your guidance. And in my moments of doubt, when I want to say no, I hear you guys' voice of reason.
3: I have three kind of rules that I use on the job for this sort of thing. Number one is limit contact with the people who claim to be the victims. Two is deny responsibility, it's the company that did it. And number three, of course, is just repeatedly say yes to whatever the company asks of you. It's kind of That's how you get by in these situations. Yeah, I'm trying to say yes to like, I'm trying to say yes to more things right
4: now, frankly. You know, someone says, you want to go on a trip to Milan? I'm like, yes. You know, if someone's like, do you want to write this press release explaining that there's no legal liability for the side effects of this chemical? I'm like, yes.
0: I want to raise, so I'm on that bandwagon too, guys. Who wants a no man?
2: I'm going to frame all those things that you just said. Say yes to everything and just go with the flow, you know?
4: Something great on the depression front. Omnicorp just installed these, what they call happiness boxes. So you just go into the, it's a padded little happiness box. They play some nice music. Some affirmations come on screen. You know, I am providing the productivity that is needed. I am a valuable worker, that sort of stuff. Really uplifting. Honestly, I've been using it a lot recently and it's great.
1: It's so good. I use it all the time as well. It's a great place to go when you have moments of doubt when you're questioning everything you can just go in there and it just reminds you of why you set out to work for Omnicorp in the first place
2: oh that sounds amazing might have to borrow one of you guys coupons because I think there's like a clearance I tried to get into one of those earlier and yeah my card didn't work
4: oh yeah you know what well we'll keep working you up the chain and we can't really share our cards but we'll make sure that you get in the position that you need to be so you can get into those happiness boxes and Smile away the day. Exactly. And then maybe next time
3: you'll be buying us baby turtles.
1: The mm-hmm. <laughs> dream.
2: Oh, 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 sorry, guys. It's just the word baby sometimes sets me off. Aww. I don't mean to ruin the mood. It's going to go to the powder room.
0: I think that's a good idea.
4: Mm, yeah.
1: I hope you feel embarrassed.
2: Don't worry. We're here
4: It's for not you. easy. She yeah. wants us to buy anything. She'll make it. She'll figure it out.
1: I think the key thing is for her not to think too hard into things. Too
0: much questioning, you know what I mean? That does nothing for anyone. Just go with the flow. Go with it.
4: Honestly, this is kind of making me feel like I need to visit a, a happiness pod. I'm,
0: <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I thinking is that same thing.
4: Do they have one here? <laughs> They have one here. This place isn't run by Omnicorp yet. But, but we can uh, we can go up the street. is oh, uh, a... coming back. So, uh, Prince Harry's in the news again. Oh, yes. What's he up to this time? He's fit, isn't he? So fit.
0: Danielle, we know you have a massive crush on Prince Harry.
2: <laughs> oh, talking about Prince Harry again. I mean, I can talk about him or...
3: Day. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Some things never change. Yeah,
2: sorry about that earlier guys. It all got a bit intense.
3: Don't worry, we're here for you. And and at the same time we're also used to ignoring the cries of just many kinds of people crying for help. So it all fades into the background after a while. You've
1: got to be tough. You learn to sleep at night.
4: And so, this group of friends continued to make more and more excuses for their increasing complicity in the evils perpetuated by Omnicorp. Spending more and more time in the happiness booths, and less and less time, questioning their participation. And when times were tough they always remembered to hold fast to their three most dear principles. Don't listen to the victims, deny responsibility, and always say yes to the requests of your superiors. Things never got better at Omnicorp, in fact they got worse. But at least these friends got to eat some delicious baby turtles before they went extinct because of catastrophic climate change.
3: Of course, their lifestyle and the lifestyle of all those propped up by this ecologically damaging system were changed permanently in the World Revolution of 2032, which overthrew the abusive system of property and all hierarchical society permanently to create a library socialist solarpunk ecotopia through a complex series of actions organized according to three principles. First, the victims of hierarchical society were connected with and brought into the process in a myriad of ways. Their voices amplified, and the movement prioritized their well-being, insights, and leadership. Number two. The movements reminded the powerful of their responsibilities, finding the most ethical stances and constantly reminding the people in power of what they were participating in, both in the boardrooms and in the streets, in a thousand different ways. And finally, number three, the movement just said no, repeatedly. They found ways to weave together the fabrics of abstention, rejection, and refusal in tactics like mass quitting, strikes, boycotts, and work refusals, in organized conscious group efforts to refuse the system and to create another.
4: Of course our protagonists, now fully poisoned by the systems they participate in, fought against this change tooth and nail, as these three principles went so against what they'd been taught to believe. Until the bitter end, they made every effort to contain and redirect the revolution as it spread, villains of their own story. Thankfully, in the end, they were defeated by the forces of good, who instituted a fully democratic and ecological society that took care of everyone and made space for everyone to live their best lives, thriving together.
3: And in the years after the revolution, most of them did come around eventually, recognizing that things were indeed better for everyone, including them. Except for one of them, and we won't say which one here, who held mercilessly onto the ideas of the old system, publishing an independent newspaper called The Baby Turtle for many years, which held very strange and cruel opinions by the new society standards, and which almost nobody read. Its cruel ideology was so bizarre, so incoherent, and so unable to influence the new political system, that it now existed only as a target of widespread mockery, and the people laughed and laughed and laughed at how incorrect and farcical it was forever. The End
4: Well, that's a bit of a sad ending if you're cheering for the protagonist, but it's a happy ending for a lot of other people. For the whole society. Like if you made a connection with the protagonists and you're like, oh, I'm cheering for them, and then you didn't care that they went astray, then you'd be like, damn, they were foiled.
3: Yeah, if you did end up rooting for our protagonists, even though they did become the villains, you know, I do think it's important to empathize with people who do wrong things. It's not that they're bad people necessarily, they just got pushed into a bad position, but we shouldn't start identifying with them. That's just one of the dangers of anti-hero stories. It's that whole meme of, you know, missing the point of Joker and Walter White and all these things. Yeah, you could add
4: all these characters to that starter pack. Exactly. By the way, do you happen to know the baby turtles? A lot of people are rooting for them to come back and to be cloned. Do you know whatever became of that?
3: Oh, yeah, Uh, let me just flip to the postscript here, and it says in the new utopian society, some extinct species were brought back through advanced future cloning, but actually not all species. This particular baby turtle that they were eating was never brought back outside of captivity and some very specific circumstances because it would have too severely disturbed the new ecosystem in the place that it had once called home. So they they could have brought it back, but it was a bad idea for other reasons.
4: Oh, that makes sense uh, that the ecosystem could change.
3: Well, that's an interesting little parable, little story. And that's the end of it. Yeah, the real end is the question of, you know, is this a parable of our world or not? I guess that's the choice moving forward, but like after the episode to think about.
4: And that's the real end.
2: Thanks again for tuning into our show.
0: It's a brand new year at Third, meaning new shows, new articles and a new issue. If you want to contribute to the Third platform, email us at info@thirdmagazine.co.uk.
2: That's Third with 3 eyes and you can find our friends Seriously Wrong at s r s l y wrong online too.
0: And you got to the end of the episode. I think that means you liked it.
2: Remember that favour we had of you? Share the love by sharing this or any of our other episodes. Put a link in your WhatsApp group, tweet your favourite quote, or ground with hashtag third waves.
0: Oh, yeah, and like, follow, and review us too, please.